This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen. And welcome to episode 87 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I share some strategies and talk through some specific case studies where the IEP team did not agree. So specifically, these scenarios cover one situation where a student needed some support with language and also had an ADHD and OHI label. And then another scenario where an SLP was supporting some bilingual students. And so I wanted to share this episode because I actually, you know, I actually felt a little bit conflicted about sharing the first part because I have really revised the way that I explain the way that clinicians should support students who have that profile of showing signs of ADHD, but also needing some support with language. I probably would have explained it a little bit differently or things that I would have pushed back on now probably would have been different than the way that I explained it back then. However, the reason that I decided to share this episode is because I wanted to just be totally transparent with the way that my thought process has changed when it comes to supporting students who need support with language and executive functioning, which I didn't even mention executive functioning in this episode, which obviously is a problem. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to just kind of share part of my journey in understanding this this uh, how to support students and how we can show up as leaders as clinicians. and. 
also, I did want to share this because I think that regardless of what the specific recommendations were, I think the process of understanding how to establish trust with your team can be the same, regardless of what decisions you're making. So I did share a number of tips there. So that's why I did want to want to share this episode. But I did want to say, just just to let you know, before you listen to this episode, I have changed my thoughts on this. Really, in this scenario, the case was, you know, the SLP and the psychologist felt that the student needed some support with language. The teacher was saying they're not paying attention in class. And so the student got a label of OHI and ADHD. And my concern was partially that maybe they didn't fully do a full assessment. They just put that label on the student without doing a full assessment. If a student actually does have ADHD, they should get a full evaluation so that we can just figure out what supports they actually need. And if the student is supposedly showing, quote, attending difficulties, a lot of times they probably do need some executive functioning supports. So if I were guiding these clinicians now, I probably would have, yes, said, okay, let's, I still agree that we want to make sure that we have the right eligibility category, whether it's, you know, speech and language, whether it's OHI, but if there are attention issues and we need support with language, we do want to make sure that we support the student's language skills. But also what I would add that I did not mention in this episode is that we need to get everyone on the same page about pro- providing executive functioning support within the classroom. And so that, again, I think that in some scenarios, if the person supporting that student who's reporting those you know, issues with attention, if they're thinking, okay, just pull them out into therapy and fix the problem, well, that's not going to solve the issue. It needs to be a combination of intervention, but also there needs to be some classroom supports in place. So I would say that some of the advice that I gave here for building trust, even though I probably would have added some specific recommendations had I had done this Q&A now, the idea of building trust on the team still holds true. So again, take the founding principles of establishing trust as you look through these scenarios and know that I think that we all are continually evolving in the way that we provide support and services. But with that particular scenario, if a student does need support in the classroom, then it's going to be even more important to establish trust with the administrators, with the teachers, and everyone that you're working with. So before I get started with this episode, I wanted to mention that if you have scenarios like these, if you're a clinician, whether you are a social worker, a psychologist, a speech pathologist, or other service provider, and you want to make sure that your kids are getting support across the day, if they are having things like, you know, attending difficulties, and you know that there's probably more to the story, maybe they need some support across the day to build their their ability to read the room and use strategies and think ahead. If you know that they need those supports and you know that they're not going to get those supports just in your therapy room, you need to work as a team to support those students and you're struggling to get buy-in, then you would be a great fit for the School of Clinical Leadership. This is a program where I share strategies and tools for clinicians to help better leverage their time so that they can build the key relationships and collaborations that can help provide integrated service delivery. A lot of times when we have scenarios like these, when the IEP team doesn't agree, it's because there's not 
clear communication. And a lot of times there's not clear communication because everyone is so busy. Everybody knows that they should be communicating. Everybody knows that they should be a leader in their role, even if they're not in an official leadership role. But many times blocking out time to actually figure out a solid strategy to be consistent with these types of things is really something that causes people to not do things that they know that they should be doing. And of course, then that just makes you feel bad about the services that you are delivering. And that's not a good place to be. So that's why I created the School of Clinical Leadership to empower clinicians in having a solid strategy so that they can make better use of their time, so that they can go beyond just the typical self-care and productivity strategies, so that they can create real leverage and have a plan to build the relationships that they need so that they can build trust with all of the stakeholders and get students comprehensive services that they feel good about delivering. So to learn more about the School of Clinical Leadership, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership and learn how to become a member. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. So now let's get into episode 87. So let's go to our next one here. Okay. So strategies for meetings where the IEP team is making a decision you don't agree with. Um, Okay. Let me move this up here a little bit. All right. I'm going to be looking up and reading here. So I'm going to read the entire scenario out because I just skimmed over it at the beginning here. But again, it's coming down to when we think about it with that first question that I mentioned, it's like, if people trust you and you have a good relationship with them, they buy into what, what we recommend and what we're saying. That's kind of what's going on here too, as well, even though it's a completely different question. So, um, she says, as part of my job as a school SLP, I get called upon to do reevaluations for students enrolled in private schools who live in the attendance area. Um, a lot of times these kids are, are less severe than the students who are enrolled at the public school. And she is thinking, um, this SLP is thinking that they, the standards in the private school for what is normal are a lot different than the public school. And that a lot of these kids are not as severe as what would what we would typically think of as a student who would qualify for services, but because there's a little bit more of an elite standard in the private school, they're appearing to have more issues. So, for example, um, they're again, she's saying they're being compared to a more elite group of peers and seem more out of the norm than they actually are. Yes, this absolutely happens. Um, it seems kind of unjust, and so she gives an example of a fourth grader who scored in the disordered range on language testing. Um, And so the SLP thinks that the language issues are the things that are causing the issues, but he ended up with a much more restrictive label. He ended up with OHI and ADHD in addition to speech and language because the private school teacher said he's very distracted and off task. And her thoughts were, Well, of course he's distracted and off task. He doesn't, he can't understand what you're saying. So obviously he's going to seem that way. Um, So she's saying, you know what? I didn't feel comfortable with that label. I didn't agree with it, but we were worried that 
Um, if we pushed back, and I guess the psychologist agreed with her as well with the SLP that it was not appropriate, um, that she that they were worried about the pushback that they were going to get from the special ed director, from that teacher, um, from from anyone in that situation. So here's the thing, um, again, and this comes down to confidence and the confidence that you project and also the relationships and trust that you have with the, with the private school teacher. So I'm not quite sure about the situation, but my thoughts would be that, um, number one, I'm not sure how much interaction you get with the private school teachers. Um, I'm not sure what types of procedures are in place for actually determining what is an attention problem and what isn't. But I would say that, and even this might even be not necessarily with the private school teacher, but also with the, with your director, but those people who are going to be making the decisions, you really, it's really important to establish some kind of, to establish trust with them um, and get an idea of what their thoughts are on a situation like this. So there's a couple different things that you can do as far as, uh, as procedural things that you can do and, or that you can ask the teacher to do in order to actually make sure that the students are getting good service and that they're getting a good quality evaluation. So in this particular case, um, obviously with attention, a kid shouldn't just get an ADHD label, an OHI, um, just because the teacher says he can't pay attention. There needs to be some type of assessments done. There should be some type of rating scale done. In order to have an OHI label, they should have a diagnosed impairment. So I don't know if the student actually has an ADHD diagnosis, but you you should have that before you actually put that label on a student. Now, I'm hoping in this situation that he didn't get more services than he needed, but um, hopefully there was at least some control over that. But yes, the label can be problematic if the student doesn't actually have ADHD. So you want to make sure that you're doing all of the things legally. Obviously, even if the teacher is throwing a fit about it, if you're doing something that's illegal, you don't want to have your name on that um, on that document because that means that you agree with it. So number one, make sure that you're doing something that's legal um, and make sure that you're following those procedures. So the next thought is how do you establish trust with that teacher so that you're actually um, making some recommendations and coming to a consensus on recommendations and um, not just feeling like you're, you're caving in for the sake of uh, avoiding some conflict. So I would say that if you have another evaluation like this, it's coming up in the private school, anything that you can do to start that communication before the meeting, whether it be just getting on the phone with that teacher and just hearing them out and just at least kind of acknowledging some of their concerns like, okay, you know, yes, I hear you saying that it's really hard to keep them on task and um, it's really hard to um, get, manage your classroom when the, when the student is off task. Whatever it is, making them feel heard before the meeting. And then seeing if you can see what the teacher wants out of the situation. A lot of times, unfortunately, 
in those cases where teachers are used to higher functioning students, a lot of times it's like, well, he should be in special ed, so get him out of my room. Well, that's not necessarily the right situation. So anything that you can do to start establishing that relationship and at least making the teacher feel heard, um, that's going to help the process. So I would start facilitating those conversations before the meeting, because then you can start kind of laying that groundwork for, okay, um, like whatever you're thinking is appropriate for the student, starting to plant some seeds for how that's going to meet the needs that the teacher needs. Um, Because again, you, a lot of times when people aren't, aren't buying into what we say. It's because they um, feel like they didn't have input in the process. They feel like they haven't been heard. And so they're just pushing back because they feel like they're not being listened to. So you want to make sure that the te- you've established that trust. And then number two, they don't necessarily see how what the solution, how the solution ties to the, the problem that they're having. So you want to figure out how you can link whatever recommendations you have up with the teacher and start to feel that out beforehand. So that way you can kind of tell when you're going into that meeting, okay, what objections are we going to need to overcome? Because a lot of times um, the teacher might not be, you know, for example, they might, they might be worried about certain things. Like if they only have speech, is this going to, you know, am I still going to have to, you know, address these attention issues in my classroom or whatever it is, there might be things that they're concerned about with accepting whatever your plan is. So you want to try to figure out what those objections are when you come to the meeting so that you can overcome them. Because that way you're helping the, the, the teacher, whoever or whoever it is, feel like they're being heard, but also for you're coming up with an objection to or for a reason why your plan is going to take care of those things that they're concerned about. So those would be those main things. Because a lot of times, like if you kind of skirt around the issue, they might have things in their head that they're concerned about. Like, what about this? What about this? Um, I think um, with, with, with teachers, with students who have attention issues, it's kind of like, all right, well, if they're just getting speech, you know, I'm going to have to keep dealing with this on my own. I'm not going to get support there. A lot of times they want the students to get more services because they see it as like, I want the student to get the help that they need. And there's this idea of more is better. And there's this idea of I'm on my own. If I don't, if the student doesn't get this IEP that includes all of these things. So whatever their objections are, you want to figure out what they are so that you can come to the meeting prepared to overcome them and explain why you're going to address all of those things. So basically overcoming objections is just um, addressing concerns that that person has. So whatever they are, you want to see if you can feel those out, uh, if you can feel those out beforehand and come to the meeting prepared with with how it's actually going to solve the problem for them and make their life easier, then it's going to be a lot easier to establish that trust and get them to buy in to what you're doing. It's not a foolproof thing, but the more that you can make that other person feel heard, 
the better. Now, also, I would say that you probably want to, if this is a, a consistent issue, I would get your, your director or your administrator on board as well. If you think that there's going to be a meeting that's going to be a little bit more combative, you might ask for support. I know that, and I'm not sure what types of administrators come to your meetings, but um, don't be afraid to ask for support or assistance if you feel that there's go going to be a consistent issue with a particular school. So again, I think that part of this is, again, with the first thing, um, with the first one about people asking you for references for what you're doing, a lot of it is about establishing trust and um, establishing yourself as somebody who, um, number one, listens to people, um, hears people's concerns, and then also, number one, um, number two, knows what they're doing. So if people think, okay, this, this person is going to listen to me, they're going to hear my concerns, and they're going to take care of things, they're going to be a lot more likely to follow through with your recommendations. Um, think about, I mean, you might have Think about when you go to the doctor. I mean, there's been a couple times when I have had certain certain issues that, um, let me think, uh, let me think of a specific example. So I was having, um, I have Raynaud's, which is when you get poor circulation in your hands and feet and your hands and feet turn purple or white. And I was also at the same time having some GI issues. So I went to a rheumatologist and this, physician's assistant was asking me questions. And so I thought, well, if I have issues with other parts of my body, then maybe that's affecting my circulation. Like, are my GI issues affecting that? So I would, I was telling her about all these other things like stress, stomach issues, all these other things. And she was like, I don't want to hear about that. I just want to hear about your hands. Like how, when are your hands cold? And it was I ended up not going back to that doctor because I felt like she was very dismissive. She wasn't listening to me. And because of that, I was like, you're not really listening to the entire problem. And so because of that, because you won't listen to me, I don't trust you because I don't really think that you are going to take the time and hear me out. You just have your protocol that you want to follow and you just want to get me in and out. You don't want to make people feel like that. So the more that you can hear them out, the better. Obviously, you don't want to let them go on and on and on. You want to make sure that you have a clear agenda for the meetings. Um, that, um, that will help as well. But if you make them feel like you're, they're being heard, it's going to be a lot better. And then also, I mean, being seen as a trusted expert who's confident in what you're doing, if you're coming off very timid, then that's not going to inspire a lot of confidence. Think about if you were going to have surgery and the surgeon came in and was like, oh, I don't know about this. I'm not sure. Well, I think this is the right thing to do. You would not feel very good about that. You'd want someone who comes in that's like, all right, we're going to take care of you. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be good. We're going to do this, this, and this. You want someone who's calm and confident. That's going to make you feel better. So both of those things are going to make it a lot easier to, um, have people buy into whatever you're recommending for an IEP meeting, whatever you're recommending for why you're using your assessment procedures. So you guys see how these things kind of go together, even though they're totally different questions. And then for this third question, um, same thing. Again, it, it does kind of come down to trust. Um, and I think that a lot of times these professional decisions do come down to trusting yourself and projecting that 
level of confidence to other people you work with. So let's talk a little bit about the bilingual elementary school. So here's the question. I work at a bilingual elementary school where native Spanish-speaking students receive instruction in Spanish at the younger grades and then incorporate more English until eventually classes are taught 50-50 English-Spanish by fifth grade. Most of my therapy is in Spanish, especially in the younger grades. I'm not a native speaker, but I'm comfortable doing therapy with young kids in Spanish. There is an SLP in my building who speaks only English. I often get children on my caseload whose parents speak mainly or only Spanish, but the kids' expressive language is in English. And I usually counsel these parents on helping their kids grow their vocabulary in Spanish, including things like recasting and in, in, into Spanish. And the reasoning is that language one language loss is the norm and detrimental to language development, not to mention that there's a cultural and relationship issue, especially if the parents are primarily speaking Spanish in the home. And that's a problem if kids can't develop language in their, develop um, their native language as well as English. Obviously, if they're going to be in the United States, obviously it does it helps if you speak English, especially if classrooms um, instruction is being taught in English. So obviously developing both languages is important. And we know that those kids who are developing multiple languages, we know that there's a benefit to that. Um, so let me get to the, the question here. So the way her schedule's laid out, she has to take a lot of these kids in groups with Spanish dominant. So they get a lot of their language therapy in Spanish. And they seem to make pretty good progress, but they still speak mostly English outside of therapy. And sometimes their teachers will say, will ask me to confirm their opinion that these kids should not be in a bilingual classroom since they speak ma mainly English, um, which uh, the SLP disagrees with because they're still bilingual, even though socially they speak mostly English. So the question is, should I be passing these students on to my English-only coworkers so they can get therapy in English, or should I push back and say, you know what, bilingual programs are appropriate for these kids? So in this situation, she's the teacher is saying, well, these kids are speaking English, and the SLP is saying, well, but they're bilingual. They are. We teach. This is a bilingual program at the school. We know that getting developing both languages is important. Um, so we shouldn't just push them into mostly English and that they shouldn't be in the bilingual program. So I think in this case, this is um, the other two scenarios I talked about projecting that level of confidence and doing so in order to establish trust, things like that. But this I think is more about trusting your, your own judgment. So in this case, I think um, the, the SLP knows what's best for these students. So I think that not only do we want other people to trust us, but we want to trust us as well. So trust your judgment here. So I think that, yes, like you, you know what the answer is. You know that these students probably should be still in a bilingual program because, again, culturally, we want them to be able to communicate with people at home. We know that it is beneficial to language development to be developing both of those languages. Um, teaching one language and focusing on the native language is not going to make them less able to learn languages. Actually, people who are bilingual tend to have more metalinguistic awareness 
than people who have only one language. So it's not going to be, you're not doing any harm by doing these students or by doing therapy with these students in Spanish. And, and yes, I mean, I think you know that they should be in the bilingual program. So this is a matter of trusting yourself, trusting that, you know, I mean, if you have been working in this school and you've been working in a bilingual program, I think, you know, what's, what's best for these students. And I think that you can think of yourself as an expert. I mean, not many SLPs have, a lot of us aren't bilingual. And so we don't have that perspective and we don't have, um, this does sound like kind of a unique program where um, a lot of us don't have that that perspective that you have. So, I mean, you, you need to consider yourself an expert in doing therapy with bilingual students, because a lot of people, you, you have a lot more experience if you're in one of those programs than a lot of people. Um, however, um, there's another issue here, which is, okay, should they get some therapy in English? Should I pass them on to my English only coworkers? I don't think, I mean, I think that it would be beneficial for them to get some therapy in English as well, if they are English speakers. So what you could do, and I'm not sure about the feasibility of this is, is it possible for you to sometimes do therapy with these students in English if they are going to be in a 50-50, half English, half Spanish program? Is there a way that they could get their therapy in a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of English, whether you are the one that's delivering all of it or whether they, may, they maybe go with the um, go to therapy with the other SLP one day a week or whatever it is? So if that's a possibility, I know that that complicates things a little bit, but I think we can be, um, you can be creative with how you provide these services. I mean, you don't necessarily have to only have one SLP seeing a student, although I know that that's sometimes how, how it works out. I have in some of the buildings that I've worked in before split services with a student. I had a student, it was a student who used AAC who, um, I worked with the device and then my coworker worked with the speech sounds. And yes, we did some overlap because we were talking. And so I would kind of incorporate what she was doing. She would incorporate a little bit of what I was doing, but I handled the stuff for the device. She did uh, the therapy for the student because the student had severe apraxia. And so it just helped to uh, funnel things a little bit. So I was focused on my thing. She was focused on her thing, even though we were overlapping a little bit. And even though it did complicate things to have two SLPs, if that's possible, that would be great. Um, and if you can find a way to work some English into your therapy sessions, that would be great as well. But yeah, I mean, I think you know that they should be in the bilingual program. And Again, I think that you can use some of the same strategies that I used before um, as far as, you know what, um, we know that there are there is a benefit to actually getting therapy and, and developing both languages at once. It's not going to take away from one to the other. Um, and again, I can list some references as well that shows that, you know, students, you're not going to be harming their English development by talking Spanish to them, um, if especially if they're eventually going to be in one of those bilingual programs. So, and that's, this is something that you can do research on as well, but I can cite some references for you. But 
again, it's one of those things where I think if you go in and have a discussion with the teacher about their concerns, um, if you share your experience, if you sound like you know what you're talking about, a lot of times you don't necessarily need to pull out a list of journal articles. It's more a matter of um, making yourself feel confident enough that you can go into those discussions feeling good about what you're talking about. Because again, I think you know the answers. You just you just need to be confident that that you know what you're talking about. So to sum up, we talked about three different things tonight, but the it all came back to being confident in what you're doing and establishing trust and respect from other people, which is huge if we, um, regardless of if you're in a school system, um, whether you are providing services for another school system, like if you're in private practice and you have a contract with the school, or if you are the outside therapist who's trying to collaborate with the school therapist, or vice versa, if you're the school therapist that is wanting to share information with a private therapist, all those things are really important. Um, or even if you're the therapist who is, regardless of if you're in the school or if you're an outside practitioner making recommendations to an IEP team, establishing that trust that you understand their situation is key. I know that I was, um, a lot of times, if there's this person who's coming in from the outside that's making a recommendation, there is a little bit of pushback. I know that I personally got defensive before when there was, I think it was a psychologist who was saying, oh, this student needs more speech. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm the speech therapist or I'm the speech pathologist. Why are you telling me how to do my job? And um, eventually I did end up going with what that psychologist recommended. But initially I was kind of like, hey, wait a minute, because I thought from my perspective, I'm the one that's doing therapy with her. You're seeing her once a week outside of the school systems. How do you really know what's going on? And so part of that is when you come in and you kind of come in very authoritative without listening first, then people are not really in a place where they want to listen to you. So I am going to, I I'm, I'm, can't remember which week it was. Um, it was back in, I believe it was July 28th. I'll have to check, but I will link to that coaching call. But when it comes to establishing buy-in with stakeholders, I did talk about a motivational um, process or a, an interviewing process that you can use to walk people through. This is something that you can use with teachers, with parents. You can even use it with administrators or the, the students themselves. When, you're, when you have a particular protocol or something that you want them to do, essentially what you're doing is during this process, you're going to walk them through and interview them and get some information from them. So essentially what you're going to do is pull out the information that you need in order to help them convince themselves that they need to follow through with your recommendations. And there's a way that you can elicit questions that are going to pull that out, that are going to make things apparent so that they um, realize that what you're recommending is in their best interest. So I will link to that call in the notes below this video, I believe it was the one that was the, the very last one in July when I talked about interviewing and getting people on board. You can use that for any of these situations, particularly the IEP meeting 
issue with uh, the private school practitioners not necessarily buying in with the with the process and overqualifying students. So um, you can use it with that when you're talking to those teachers, and then you can use it in this particular situation with the teachers not really buying into when students um, should be in a bilingual classroom versus versus not being in the bilingual program. So obviously you want to think about this beforehand, think about, okay, what evidence do I want to pull out when I'm actually talking to them? What do I, what information do I need to know in order to prove my point that whatever I'm recommending is in the student's best interest? So you want to think about that. Um, I will send you those, that link to those calls and share some references below the video. But the theme of the night is you want to, that this is all, it's partly about really trusting your, your gut and knowing that a lot of times you know the answer, you know the answer that's best for your students. It's really a matter of trusting that and, and standing your ground, but also doing it in a way that is, um, is diplomatic and establishes trust with, your, with the people that you're working with, because ultimately you might know the answer but you've got to get other people on board. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what you do in therapy. Other people aren't on board. The plan isn't going to work. So that's so key in actually getting good results in therapy is that all the other people involved with the student or client are on board. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you are interested in joining the School of Clinical Leadership, if you are someone who wants to make a bigger impact on your caseload, if you want to have more leverage and influence over the way that services are delivered in your facility, then definitely check out the School of Clinical Leadership. In this program, I help you better leverage your time and use what I refer to as the asset stacking method so that you can rework your productivity system so that you can make time to do some of those high impact activities that you know you should be doing, but maybe you don't have time for, such as building relationships or collaborating with other professionals. To check out the School of Clinical Leadership, just go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Again, that's drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, thank you so much for listening. Remember, it always helps me out if you leave me a rating and review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we will wrap up for now, but I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE 
to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.